Scripture lesson is from Psalm 82, verse 3 and 4. Give justice to the weak and the orphan. Maintain the right of the lowly and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Here ends the reading. May God grant us wisdom and courage for interpretation. Have you ever noticed how there are some things we do for one another that come so naturally that it just seems like no one really has to teach us how to do it? I mean, I know there are always exceptions in extreme cases, but in the case of a loving parent, for example, be that a mother or father or someone like a parent, for example, no one has to teach that loving parent figure if their child faces a serious threat, for example, be it from a kidnapper, let's just say, that they are to protect that child. It's instinctual. A loving parent knows quite naturally that they are to be their child's first line of defense against such a threat, and if need be, they are prepared to defend their precious child and even fight for their precious child's well-being if necessary. There is a deep and profound connection between a loving parent figure and their child under normal, healthy situations. It's just there. It's not forced or manufactured artificially or with any strain. And this bond seems to be so present in most parent-child type relationships, whether the children are adopted or whether they're with their biological parents. Loving parent figures live into their role as protectors of their children, and they do so most of the time quite willingly and even naturally. The children are the ones who need protection and someone to advocate for them. Why? Well, because they're young, maybe because they're somewhat helpless, maybe because they're still developing and learning and growing into their personhood. And so the parents step in and they provide protection, maybe some nurturing, and if necessary, some advocacy until that child can fend for themselves one day. And for that matter, even after children are supposedly grown, <laughs> I've seen a great many parents still nurturing and caring for these adult children too. Now let's switch scenarios a bit. Let me ask you something. Have you ever walked down a busy, bustling sidewalk or driven your car to a stoplight in an urban area and witnessed an adult, perhaps, who is holding a sign a bit tattered on the edges and says something like this, anything you can give will help. Homeless veteran, God bless you in advance. Chances are you've seen someone like this before or experienced some other type of scenario where it was apparent that the other person seemed to be trying to let us know that they were in need, whether it be money or food or some other kind of support. Let me ask you, if you've witnessed such a situation, think about it. How did that make you feel in that situation? Now, if you're like me, these kinds of situations, well, they make me feel uneasy. It breaks my heart on one hand to see anyone suffering, but on the other hand, I don't even know the person. I don't feel the same connection, if I'm honest, with any stranger that I feel with my own family member or even a close friend. I don't know the stranger's story, but because they're a human being, I do feel a certain desire to see them receive some sort of help. 
But part of me wonders, if I help by giving them a few bucks, will I be delivering them from their problems, or will I be enabling them to support some bad habits like drug or alcohol addiction that in turn might make things even worse for this person who seems to be desperate. Now, even though this person might be a stranger to me, deep down inside, if I have the ability to help them, I at least feel a certain sense of sadness knowing that something tragic may have happened to them and at the same time feeling torn as to how to proceed. But do you want to know something that haunts me? I seldom offer help in the forms of money or assistance to strangers like this on the street. I've heard too many stories about people trying to help a stranger off the street like this, and I don't know whether they're true or whether they're just rumors, but I hear about people perhaps being robbed or injured or even kidnapped. And This world in which we live is complicated like that, unfortunately. It's a risky venture to offer to help a complete stranger, and the chances are very high, however, that they're truly in need. And with even a, but with even a slim chance of being mugged or kidnapped or injured, it seems like risky behavior for some of us to help a complete stranger. And so, usually out of a concern for my own family and out of a sense of self-preservation, I usually pass by these folks on the street, but I always do so with a heavy heart, realizing they're probably really, truly hurting or lacking in some very real way. Does that make me less compassionate? That's a question that haunts me. Honestly, it haunts me a lot. And one of the things I love about this book we read from, called the Psalms, is that the Psalms tend to be brutally honest and even emotionally raw at different times And as you read them. Uh, there were likely many different authors of these wonderful scriptures, but no matter which psalm and no matter which author, uh, they seem to express in very raw and honest and real terms what so many people of faith wrestle with, and today's scripture lesson is no different. Psalm 82 projects in mythic colors a highly dramatic picture of the world that reveals a world full of injustice and violence. And it laments this upheaval as a consequence of the failure of the gods of the nations. The psalm sees no other way out of this vicious cycle of injustice than that these gods would disappear from the stage of the heavens and walk into the earth so that Yahweh, the God of Israel, may truly become the God of all nations. Now surely the psalmist seems to think if Yahweh were in complete control, that is, if God's will were truly being done on this earth as it is in heaven, there would be no instances of injustice or tragedy like this. Surely if Yahweh were properly worshipped by all people in every nation all the way around, there would be no child suffering and thus no need for even a loving parent to defend them from harm. Surely if Yahweh, the psalmist thinks, were worshipped by everyone on the entire planet, there would be no poor people, no homeless people with their tattered signs begging for assistance near the stoplights and the intersections in the cities. The psalm raises questions we've all struggled with. There are questions we don't really like wrestling with, if we're honest. If God is truly God, then why? Why does God not intervene when children are in danger or when children or others, for that matter, are terminally ill? Why doesn't God just wave one tiny finger and feed the hungry or clothe the naked for us? 
Why does God not jump right in the middle of all of our broken systems and fix this mess? Why doesn't God fix a system even here in America where over 25% of our workforce make $10 an hour or less and thus live below the poverty line? Why doesn't God shake things up a bit and jump in there and make things a bit more equal and shared? Why doesn't God fix it? I mean, between the years 1979 and 2007, household income in our country increased 275% for the wealthiest 1% of households. It rose 65% for the top one-fifth of households, and the bottom fifth only increased 18%. Why does God tolerate a system where the rich just get richer and the poor just seem to get poor? Why does God not break up a monopoly? In our country, where the very zip code a person is born in instantly places a cap on what they can earn and assigns them, essentially, in many cases, to a life of poverty, it just feels so incredibly overwhelming. And I think this is why some of us, on the edges, both edges of this, seem to either spend much of our emotional energy being angry, Or, on the other end of the spectrum, some of us just seem to check out and stop paying attention almost completely. The feeling of this unavoidable, impending injustice is very heavy, and it feels very helpless to carry it around. We know it, and it seems from Psalm 82 that the psalmist knew it back then. And the psalmist cried out in desperation all those years ago, God, fix this mess. Give justice to the weak and the orphan. Maintain the right of the lowly and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. It's what we do when we don't know what else to do. We pray prayers like this. They're prayers of desperation. God, help. God, fix it. God, we're stumped. We're at a loss. And we, like the psalmist in moments of desperation, have all prayed prayers like this. But in our saner moments, in those moments where our theological hats are on somewhat straight, we realize this is simply not how God works at all. God doesn't just jump in in spite of humanity and fix the messes we make. God doesn't jump in there and fix everything from the outside in, God jumps into the middle of us and through us fixes everything from the inside out. That is to say, God uses people like you and like me who are willing to be God's hands and feet in this world, who are willing to do the work of justice and righteousness to fix the messes we make and our systems perpetuate. And you know something, for at least eight centuries before the time of Jesus, there were some incredible spiritual messengers known as prophets, the Hebrew prophets, calling people to action. And they basically were saying, God has a vision for the world. It's a vision of justice. It's a vision of equity for all the people. But people, you who who are listening with the ears to hear, We've got work to do. God is not going to fix this mess for us. God is waiting to fix this mess through us. And so these 8th century BCE religious geniuses, whom we know as Amos and Hosea 
and Micah and Isaiah, they had a brand in common. Did you know that? A phrase that would even fit on a bumper sticker. I've yet to see one of these in Hebrew. It says, Mishpat e Zedekah, justice and righteousness was their brand. And these prophets have always proclaimed these. And Jesus latched on to these. Justice and righteousness was his theme as well. They've always been the cardinal virtues of our faith, the pillars, if you will, on which everything else rests. And even for the centuries before Jesus came along, justice, that's doing what's fair, and righteousness, that's doing what's right, were our calling cards. And so this reflects our sermon title today, Caring for the poor, that's righteousness. Fighting for the powerless, that's justice. Occasionally they could clash, as the early bird workers in Jesus' parable about the vineyard would tell you in Matthew chapter 20. Do you remember that story? The workers who got hired late in the day got paid the same at the end of the workday as the ones who had been there since sunrise. And though each word, justice and righteousness, has its own depths, What is most interesting is how these words, justice and righteousness, are used in conjunction. Amos said, let justice roll down like mighty waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. Isaiah said, Zion shall be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness. Hosea and Micah add a dose of love, the Hebrew word, has said to their phrases, Hold fast to love and justice. Micah said, do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly before your God. So to put it this way, the political platform of these classical Hebrew prophets emphasized the relationship, the conjunction between justice and righteousness. And actually in Hebrew, that phrase means care for the poor as Israeli biblical scholar Moshe Weinfeld argues. For the prophets, the truest measure of societal health, how well are we doing as a society, according to the prophets, was the same as for Jesus. And in the spirit and spiritual footsteps of these promises, Jesus put it in Matthew 25, 45, the true test of a society is how it treats the least of these, the widow, the stranger, the orphan, the prisoner, the disabled or differently abled. Now, I have found it curious for a long time that Christians I know begin these kinds of conversations not with the foundation of their faith and the scriptures and the Christian and Jewish traditions, but with their own political leanings as a foundation for these conversations. And then they bring their political leanings into a discussion about faith as opposed to beginning with the foundation of their faith and then letting it flow out from there to form their political leanings. Now you might be able to jump to some conclusions that would ignore the plight of the poor and the powerless if you began with your own secular partisan political arguments before turning it into a conversation about faith. But as a minister, I simply cannot see how a person of the Christian faith could begin from the vantage point of our history and traditions and scriptures and then make any kind of an argument, be it political or otherwise, where caring for the poor and fighting for the powerless would not be at the top of the priority list and even a true test of one's own faithfulness within their faith. 
I have heard ad nauseum some Christians argue that we should care for the poor and fight for the powerless, but only as far as our individual efforts can go or as our churches can take us, and that the American government, for example, by American Christians, I've heard say that well, the government should be exempt from this somehow. But a careful examination of the scriptures would quickly correct that viewpoint. I'm not sure that any of us as individuals or churches, or even governments for that matter, since governments consist of people, are removed from the responsibility of fixing the system and caring for the poor and fighting for the powerless as it has been handed down to us by our spiritual ancestors. In Matthew 25, arguably the most prominent teaching of Jesus in all of the scriptures on caring for the poor and fighting for the powerless, Jesus says that nations will be judged for how they treat the least of these. He's talking about the heads of state. He's talking about the governments. He's talking about the people that support those systems. Listen to it once again. Matthew 25, 31 through 45. When the Son of Man comes in glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the thrones of his glory, and all the nations will be gathered before him. And he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep at his right hand and the goats at his left. And then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you that are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. And then the righteous will answer, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food or thirsty and gave you something to drink? And when was it that we saw you a stranger and welcomed you or naked and gave you clothing? And when was it that we saw you sick or in prison and visited you? And the king will answer them, Truly I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it for me. And then he will say to those on his left hand, You that are accursed, depart from me into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not give me clothing. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. And then they will also answer, Lord... When was it that we saw you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick in prison and did not take care of you? And then he will answer them, Truly I tell you, just as you did not do it unto the least of these, you did not do it unto me. What if we've been crying out to God to fix the mess we've made, but God's been waiting on us to realize that God's plan for fixing all this involves our hands. What if God's plan for fixing all this mess where the poor are so impoverished and, and destitute, what if fixing it meant we scheduled less fun time and scheduled more time for serving others? What if God's plan for fixing this world meant we changed the ways we think about the poor and the powerless? What if God's plan for fixing all this mess involves changing how we vote or who we vote for, or the kind of policies or brands of politics or policies that we support? 
What if God's plan for fixing this great big old messy world depends solely on how we treat the very least of these among us? If that's the plan, should we be worried? Now, I'm not a psychologist, and my wife and children will tell you I'm certainly no parenting expert. But someone told me one time, and it stuck with me. You know something, David? They saw me having a difficult time. And they said, you know something? A parent can really only ever be as happy as their least happy child. Now call me codependent. Call me a helicopter parent. Whatever you want. I have seen this to be true in my own life. And it doesn't matter how great my career is going at any given moment or what the balance is in my bank account. If one of my own children is truly happy, unhappy rather, or struggling, I find it very, very challenging and next to impossible to be carefree and, you know, happy and go lucky myself. You see, this kind of connection and concern comes naturally with our children, but I wonder, I wonder, what kind of world would this be if I had the same incredibly deep sense of connection and empathy with the plight of the person holding the sign asking for help at the stoplight. Can we learn this kind of connection? Is it even possible to have this much concern for someone who's not our own flesh and blood? I suppose our answers to that question will determine what kind of world we live in. May God help us. Amen.